Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Gary McClanahan of Tucker, Georgia. Gary will get a marathon decal showing he watched 26.2 hours of his favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Michelle Rubenstein, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at Special Victims Unit Season 9, Episode 17, Authority. The Milgram Experiment. Except this time, the shock's for real. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers on and Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting Podcasts, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Good morning, Kevin Flynn. Oh, giving away our special guest. <laughs> you hate it when I do that. Uh, <laughs> well, rounding out our panel is our very special podcast guest from the It Takes Three Network, Michelle Rubenstein. Hi, Michelle. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Now, you and your friends do uh, Tree Hill Talk. <laughs> I love it. Yes, we talk about all the trees. We talk about all the trees. <laughs> and uh, Let's Talk OC. Oh. Yeah. Yes, that's our latest podcast of teen dramas. And the River Pod, which is based on Riverdale. Yep. The Archie yeah. incarnation on CW. So tell us a little bit about why you and your friends decided that... Uh, you would join this uh, merry band of pirates we call podcasters. <laughs> well, it's funny. I actually was, I got into podcasting in 2009 when I was taking a train into a job I had. And at that point, no one was into podcasts. <laughs> it, well, in my friend group. And so I then forced my friend and my boyfriend, now husband, to make a podcast with me. Then we went on and made uh, Commercial Convo, which was a podcast all about commercials. And then <laughs> and then I was like, you know what? Screw that. I want to do one about dreams. So then I had my own podcast called In Your Dreams, where I had guests on and we talked about dreams. And then my friend Ingrid, who's now my co-host and business partner, she was obsessed with One Tree Hill. She knew I loved the OC. And she came up with this idea. She's like, we should watch One Tree Hill and then, you know, recap each episode. And that's how... It Takes Three Network happened and Tree Hill Talk. And now that we just finished One Tree Hill back in August, I was like, it's time for the OC. That's my favorite teen drama. <laughs> so that led us to. It's one of mine, OC. too, by the way. I love the OC. Oh my <gasps> God. I just got my stepdaughter to start watching it. It's so Death good. and Summer Forever. I love the OC. I love all the characters in the OC. I love everything about it. And I love the fact that there's even an OC SVU crossover. You know what I'm talking about, Kevin? I have no idea. Peter Gallagher is what I'm talking about, Kevin. Oh. Peter Gallagher was the dad on the OC. Wasn't there a, hey, it's that girl from SVU? Oh, uh, what's her face? Yeah, the, yeah. what's her face? Um, the know, blonde. The main one. Who's Misha, Barton? Misha Barton, yes. Ah, yes. Misha Barton was on an SVU, and of course she was also a little girl from The Sixth Sense, who was one yes. of the dead people that Bruce yes. Willis saw. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, Michelle, you have a personal connection to this particular episode. What is it? Okay, so... Fun fact, I have only seen Law & Order SVU 
twice. Mm -hmm. Once because my sister was on this particular episode and twice again to watch this episode for this special podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) I have never seen any other Law & Order episodes or any really criminal shows. But yeah, my sister was an extra on this particular episode of SVO. The pillow fight scene. She, Yeah, so she was in the pillow fight scene and she was in the Grand Central Station scene. She... You know, I got to give her props. She's a go-getter. If you watch her in the Grand Central Station uh, scene, her route does not make sense. But you could tell she's fighting (laughs) to get on camera. And And same thing with the pillow fight scene. She is just making her way. So she is right in front of that camera. And I had to bring her to the city that day for her to film this um, this episode. And I got really mad and I left her and abandoned her in the city. Wow. (laughs) Was there a chance you could have been on this episode? I don't think so. She was really snotty about it, but (laughs) that's one of the reasons why I was like, screw you. Someone else can come pick you up. But I remember on the outskirts of being on um, like the outside of the pillow fight scene, I saw that happen and I thought that was pretty cool. Huh. So now you've established that you've only watched one episode, so we'll do it anyway. What's your favorite detective team? (laughs) Favorite law and order detective team. So it's really funny. Uh, From this episode, I think, you know, I I like Munch. Hey, he's a child of the 60s. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, it's funny because I watched this episode last night and my husband's like, there was a time in my life where I just watched hours of Law and Order. I'm like, how did I miss this part of my life where you just like spend a sick day or a lazy day just watching Law and Order? But how do we yeah. not have your husband on this podcast? Yeah, can, of you? Yeah. can you leave his email address? <laughs> now let's look at the first half of this episode, SVU season nine, episode 17, Authority. Elliot and Olivia find the manager at Happy Burger has strip-searched and tied up a teenage worker. He says he got a phone call from a Detective Milgram who ordered him to do it because that sounds reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) But there is no Detective Milgram, so who is it behind this prank phone call? So what do we have on this phone freak? Phone call's a dead end. They used a prepaid card on a payphone at the public library in Midtown. So maybe the library has surveillance cameras. Not a chance. Librarians took on Big Brother so it wouldn't be able to monitor what you and I are reading. Trace the guy who bought the airtime. Taru tried. The card was one of a batch sold at the Value Mart uptown. They can't tell who bought the individual card. He's either really lucky or damn good. My money's on good. By using surveillance video from where the phone cards were purchased, the detectives home in on Merritt Rook, who is just Robin Williams in a pair of glasses so we know he did it. He says he went fishing during the crime, but after calling all of his alibi witnesses, who were Mrs. Doubtfire, Popeye, Teddy Roosevelt, (laughs) the genie from Aladdin, uh, they realize it's just Rook on the other end of the phone. What a mastermind. Rook defends himself at trial because, well, that's how we just get more Robin Williams that way. He (laughs) says he gives away those phone cards to homeless people, and the photo of him at the library at the time of the prank call was altered by crime technicians. He argues that the jurors shouldn't be sheep, should think for themselves, carpe diem, captain my captain, nanu nanu, I gotta go see about a girl, good morning (laughs) Vietnam, case dismissed. (laughs) But since the show is only half over, we know we haven't seen the last of this guy. Okay, so let's start at the restaurant. The manager really thought he was going to get a medal for strip searching that girl. Yes, as all fast food restaurants do when they have teenage employees. (laughs) This was ridiculous. All I kept thinking was, hey, it's 30 Rock Pete. (laughs) (laughs) You strip searched a teenage girl and kept her naked in your office for 30 minutes. Detective Milgram said she could keep her apron on. You're an idiot. I resent that, detective. After all I've done to help the police department. It was ridiculous. And the whole idea that he was like, he wouldn't talk to anybody except for Detective Milgram. I'm doing the air quotes mm-hmm. thing right now. Yeah. But then as soon as Olivia's like, I'm his partner. He's like, okay, yeah, I'll open the door for you. Oh, thank God. <laughs> detective mastermind that she is in that moment. I can't stand being alone in this office with this naked girl another minute. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
So they eventually get around to meeting Merritt Rook, and he is just too eager to provide them with a whole lot of fake alibis. I don't think he came just for the blue plate special, if you know what I mean. Yeah, thanks. Well, the alibi checks out so far. Fish and Wildlife gave him a license on Monday morning. So what about the hotel? They're next. Margaretville Lodge, how can I help you? This is Detective Munch of the NYPD. I'd like to confirm if a Merritt Rook stayed there on Monday night. Certainly, please hold. Your call is important to us. Please stay on the line. One of our representatives will be with you shortly. So why does Merritt Rook like need all these elaborate alibis anyway? Well, he says it's because he likes to sleep with hookers. <laughs> Just, but he doesn't, like, he doesn't like to have sex with them. He just likes to sleep with them. And then every, and then everyone looks at him like he's super weird, like that would never happen. And I'm like, just ask Cragen. Because for Cragen, that's exactly what he did with hookers. Oh, yes. In a future season. Remember, Kevin? I remember. Remember that, Michelle? <laughs> she doesn't remember. Oh, that. yeah. <laughs> remember that? It was great. <laughs> Captain Cragen, and then he got arrested and set up for murder, but they got him off. Because he just liked to have companionship with companionship hookers. Companionship with hookers. <laughs> did he say it the same way as Rook says, oh, he just likes a warm body Pretty next much. to him? Actually, yeah. he pretty much did. Yeah. He didn't have an array of burner phones so that he could call up the fishing lodge. Well, they've been biting up here. I have a question. Yeah. So he had that array of burner phones for which he made those like brother P-Touch labels for each one that was like <laughs> fishing lodge, motel. Like It was like the Americans. Does he use those over and over again? Or did he just have to, like do those, print all those labels for this one situation where he'd be imitating six different people? I don't know about you, Michelle, but if I were doing that, I'd always have a phone like the, the, the battery was dead because I wasn't charging it enough. <laughs> yeah. And they'd be looking to call my fake hotel room and I, it'd be dead. And wasn't the tell of that that they were checking alibis by phone, which we have never seen them do before or since on any episode of Law & Order ever? They always walk into the motel and interrupt the person who does not stop what they're doing and just keeps going. Oh, it's in like, just remember it's some faraway place where they have fish. Dutchess County? Like upstate New York? That's not that far. Oh, well to the rest of us it is. <laughs> yeah. Upstate. As Michelle knows, when you live on Long Island, upstate may as well be Alaska. <laughs> it's a different world. Totally different world up there. So why do you need to cover your tracks on the phone cards if you've got all these burner phones so you can be like Mr. Rogers doing all the voices in the land of make-believe? <laughs> You always got to bring that back just to hurt me, don't yeah, you? Yeah. So, Michelle, a little backstory. Uh, I did not realize that Mr. Rogers did all the voices in the neighborhood of make-believe when I was little. Kevin told me that a few years ago, and he still brings it up that I didn't know that in an effort to undermine my credibility in a bunch of other conversations that we've had since then. Because apparently I'm the only person in America who was fooled by that. But I was not fooled by Robin Williams in this episode, because that 100% sounded like Robin Williams on every single one of those <laughs> phone calls. I know. All I kept thinking, like you said, earlier was, oh, it's Mrs. Doubtfire, and it sounds, you know, <laughs> guy. Was, oh, my gosh. Now, apparently the only way to make the arrest is not seize his telephone, but try to catch him in the act of talking in a funny voice. <laughs> this was so weird to me because this was the scene you're talking about when they make the call and they're recording, and then they just open the door. Should be ringing. How can I help you? Please hold. The door wasn't even locked. <laughs> just... <laughs> you would think if you were committing computer crimes that you would at least lock the door. That was like a basic criminal like uh, activity, right? How does that end up passing constitutional muster? <laughs> how did you enter that? We just opened the door because we thought a crime was being committed. Here's the whole thing. If you believe in the Constitution, you're just a sheep, Kevin. You're yeah, just, just a sheep. That's a sheep. Exactly. That's correct. Okay, this is SVU's 200th episode, so they needed a really big name. It's our very special guest star. <laughs> Mr. Robin Williams. Yay! Playing Merritt Rook. No, you, you mean serious actor version of Robert Williams playing Merritt Rook. Yes. My wife died three years ago. I miss her terribly. Sometimes when the pain gets really bad... I go out and look for someone who looks like Juliet, and I bring her home. Well, yeah, I mean, Robin Williams has had so many great roles. I mean, he was, of course, Mork and Mindy, Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poet Society, Mrs. Doubtfire, Aladdin, Night at the Museum, and a bunch of other shit. Patch Goodwill Adams, Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. He had well, actually, according to Garp, he had a very broad career, which is surprising for you know the crazy guy who looks like he's on cocaine, uh, improving. 
like mad on The Tonight Show. He did a lot of dramatic stuff. He worked with a lot of great actors. He was in a lot of indie things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that we really think awful lot about sort of the breadth of his career. What did, I mean, as far as guest stars go, and, you know, we're all aware of Rob Williams, how do you think he did in this episode? <laughs> well, he received an Emmy nomination what? for yeah, the guest starring that. role. So yeah. do you think he deserved it? No. I think it was more like an Elliot watch out. Someone else is here to chew the scenery situation with this Robin Williams guest star. Here's the thing. Like, rest in peace, Robin Williams, right? We don't mm-hmm. want to, like, you know, talk too much smack about somebody who's no longer with us and died in a very tragic way. That being said, I do blame Robin Williams for making comedians everywhere feel as if their real calling is as a dramatic actor. Like, that's Robin Williams' fault, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> this was not the best example of <laughs> dramatic <laughs> acting. At least not to me. As you said, just putting on the glasses does not make a serious man all by itself. No, but I guess if you he shaves his head and has those glasses, then he's the bad guy in one-hour photo. Yes. And just, just a, little more, a little creepier. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so I mean, obviously the Academy uh, really loves these uh, guest appearances. They do. You know, so How come Dee Dee Cohn didn't get the... Uh... I was just going to mention <laughs> Frenchie. The Emmy <laughs> nomination. Okay, well, let's move on. I mean, because I actually get to play like all the jingles this episode. <laughs> We're going to go to our Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. So you've already... I think you guys are pretty good here. Can you name the actress who played... The nurse. No other name, just nurse. <laughs> I know. Who is that? Dee Dee Khan, and she played Frenchie. Mr. Rook lost it. Said he'd kill Dr. Slifkin. We had to call security to escort him out. I got to run premature labor on the way. Yeah, it's uh, it's beauty school dropout herself, Dee Dee Khan. <laughs> Do you know that she was a finalist for the role of Olive Oil in the 1980 movie? Color me not surprised she would have been an awesome olive oil. Co-starring wow. whom? Robin Williams. Robin Williams, exactly. <laughs> Maybe they remained friends after that. Yeah. She has like just this really unique voice, which I mean, I think is even if you didn't see her, you would automatically She's the brunette Carol Kane is what she is, pretty much. Yeah. And and honestly, I mean, in that scene, I... I, I didn't recognize her, I, but if I closed my eyes, I knew who she was. Yeah. And you can kind of like tell like that dialogue was for her. It's like, oh, what happened to the doc? <laughs> <laughs> I just like how she's like, oh, it's time for a premature birth and just scurried away. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, bye. <laughs> I do like how she had the amazing recall. It's like of Chopper's being able radar. To, like, <laughs> yeah, she was able to call up the other case. Like, I mean, this is a nurse, right? And a maternity ward who's probably mm-hmm. been present for thousands of deliveries, you know, some of which have gone wrong, but she was mm-hmm. able to remember that exact one mm-hmm. and all of yeah. the details down yeah. to the minute. It's very yeah. exciting for her. Uh, we also get to see somebody before they were famous. Before they were famous. Who was the actress who played Trini, the uh, hamburger girl? I, I begged him to stop, but he didn't. Any idea? That I don't know. I no. don't. I miss that one. That's Monica Raymond. She plays Gabriella Dawson on Chicago Fire. You said before they were famous. <laughs> Not before they were on a C show in a C part. Come on. Well, it's also the Dick Wolf universe. It's but true. Uh, But again, like I said, I wanted to play all my jingles. <laughs> um, so you also pointed out our Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, It's that guy. So, Michelle, I know that you know this, but I'm going to turn it on Rebecca. Can you name the actor who played the restaurant manager? Uh, No, I can't. That's Scott Adsid? I told her to get her thieving little butt into my office. Pronto. And, Michelle, what's his famous role? He played Pete on 30 Rock. Yeah, oh. Pete Hornberger, one of the the writers in that okay. writing room. Yeah. Yep. Not the one with the hat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the one with the bald head. <laughs> And uh, can anyone name who our protest leader was? Oh, yes, I can. That was Mo Rocca. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maurice Albert Rocca himself. Oh. We are here to celebrate the unexpected. From uh, CBS 60 Minutes, as well as Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on oh, NPR. Oh, yeah, a bunch of stuff. So, <laughs> so Mo Rocca graduated from Harvard. Uh, he got his start in the... And I'm not making this up. The Southeast Asian Tour of Greece. <laughs> I was waiting for you to take that sip. Playing to tell you who? That. 
I don't know. Not Was Danny. Was he Kanicki? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Can you hear him in his voice? A hickey from Kanicki. <laughs> it's like a Hallmark card. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so he got a big, his big break on The Daily Show, and now he is the host of the National Geographic B and creator of the cooking show My Grandmother's Ravioli. Huh, okay. Mm. So I think this was, this was a, I want to say playing against type, but that was a really unusual part right. for him. But he's also a correspondent on 60 Minutes, is he not? Which is super weird. <laughs> I didn't even know he did that. I just or remember. CBS This Morning, like CBS one of those Sunday like, morning, CBS yeah. new shows. No, but he's on CBS News. He has uh, Mobituaries yes. is the name of his feature. <laughs> He represents himself at trial, and I actually think that Merritt Rook argues a good case that he didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, he obviously did, but I think he made a good argument that you don't have enough on me. We have records proving a call was made to the Happy Burger at that time from a phone card you purchased, which I told you I give out to the homeless. And isn't it a known fact that the homeless hang out at the library, and given the mental stability of many of the homeless, couldn't it have been one of them that made this call? I yeah. mean, what do they have? Him just imitating people on the phone, right? I mean... Well, like he said, they had the phone cards, which he says he gave away to homeless people right? who also hang out at the library. I did And enjoy, a photograph of yes. him at the library, or near the library, at the time the phone call was made. I gotta say, I really did enjoy somebody calling bullshit on the bullshit forensics on this show. This was like a moment for me where I was like, yes! Because one of the things they always do in these SVU shows is they always just like rush the evidentiary stuff and they love putting it up on PowerPoints and they love like being like, here's the computer enhanced photo, which by the way, as viewers, were like, oh, that's definitely Robin Williams. <laughs> but if you're not definitely Robin Williams, just a regular guy, it's actually kind of a decent argument that that is, you know, he's like the computer was making a guess and the guy's mm -hmm. like an educated guess and he's like it's still a guess <laughs> yeah and then he quotes Wendell Berry randomly anyway I actually think he did a pretty good job defending himself as defending oneself goes yeah I luxury is meant to be livable discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas recliners and more all built to last no matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I thought so, too. I thought the whole, court, the whole uh, trial scenes with him... He did a really good job in terms of his acting, in my opinion. He has, you know, usually you have the, the great uh, monologue in any law and order is the summation yeah. at trial. Because, you know, certainly, you know, Jack McCoy always have these very classic over-the-top ones. He had a, a really good, uh, you know, closing argument to the jury. Now, I don't blame Detectives Benson and Stabler for arresting me or Ms. Novak for putting me on trial. They're just following orders. Like a sheep following a shepherd. But we're all in danger of being sheep, blindly following the herd, never questioning authority. Is there something else we can talk about, though, that I'm wondering if Michelle might be interested in discussing with me without you? <laughs> oh, does this have to do with somebody's hair? It has to do with just Casey, and I know that Michelle okay. doesn't have a lot of reference points because she doesn't watch any SVU except for this episode. But you do watch teen dramas and like poorly produced stuff that comes out on the CW and networks like that, right? Yes, yes. So what year did this episode come out, Kevin? 2008. Can we talk about Casey's, the lawyer, she's the a prosecutor yeah. in this, yep. very particular like 1990s uh, Beverly Hills 90210 era hair and eyebrows and makeup in this episode and all of the ridiculous face acting cutaways we got of her in this show. Did you notice that, Michelle? I absolutely noticed that. And I also thought her, and maybe this is how she dresses, her suit was so frumpy. Yeah, yeah. Like, can we just, the middle, I kept focusing on it. And did I, you think it, she was pregnant? Because that was my theory. I was the did, but I didn't want to say that. Yeah. You know, you don't want to assume pregnancy. Did you look that up, Kevin? Was Diane Neal, in fact, pregnant during the filming of this episode? Uh, no, I think she was planning her failed congressional bid. <laughs> but you know what? You know why? I didn't want to assume pregnancy, but I also, in many television shows, as you see, whenever a woman is pregnant and she's not supposed to be, they'll just hide it. With yeah. like yes. a bag or a, a table, folder. a folder, yeah, a close up, or a right. lot of weird face shots yeah. of facial reactions and eyebrows. Yeah. No, they did have some long shots of her in the courtroom 
where you could see how baggy it was, but she did not look pregnant there. And I don't think if she were that they would have shot Listen, her like that. Listen, I don't that. want to be sexist. Right. But she no, go right weird ahead. in this episode. Like, Diane Neal is a beautiful woman who always just looks like a prosecutor and, like, delivers her stuff just fine in all these episodes. She looked freaking weird in this episode. And did you notice in she, in the, I guess it was, like, the second part of the trial, her chest was so red. <laughs> From the neck down. No, but it was like she had a reaction. I kept focused. I, I, I paused. I paused the episode. I was like, what is going on? Is she having an allergic reaction to that? suit that she's wearing or <laughs> that baggy polyester suit i'm allergic to know. acrylic yeah. it was fun though when he wins and he gets a not guilty verdict that he goes up to her and hugs her great job back off it was like it's been fun <laughs> i did like that i really enjoyed let's that. do this again i could so relate to that just that's just how i felt after serving on jury duty as you know, as you know. I was so you thought excited. it was fun it yeah. was so fun i couldn't wait to do it again yeah <laughs> All right, now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. Enjoying his newfound fame as a white man who didn't go to jail, (laughs) Merritt Rook urges New Yorkers to not be sheep. They demonstrate this by having a big pillow fight in Bryant Park, and because, you know, that'll stick it to corporate America. But it is a philosophy that only a munch could love. I don't condone what he did, but I understand where he's coming from. I'm a child of the 60s. We thought that LSD and free love was going to change the world. I spoke to Merritt today. He just wants to wake people up. With pillow fights. Well, we helped end the Vietnam War with sit-ins. And what war exactly is Merritt fighting here? The battle against fast foods? That's nothing. You should hear his tirade against managed care. The detectives learned that Rook's wife died in child labor. The obstetrician later died in an accident where his car rammed into a tractor trailer decapitating him, leaving Mariska Hargitay to say, hmm, that sounds familiar. No, 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 you did not. I did. The doctor left a suicide note saying Detective Milgram had been calling him about the botched delivery. Now, thinking that this is enough for an arrest, they find Rook at Grand Central Station where hundreds of his followers prove they are not sheep by freezing simultaneously when someone blows a whistle. (laughs) Because that's what that means. So Benson collars Rook, but believing he has a bomb, she disappears in the crowd with him. Elliot tracks him to a recording studio where Rook met his wife. Rook has Olivia tied up in a soundproof studio and threatens to blow the building unless Elliot does his own Milgram experiment. Rook wants him to push a button that will zap her with 240 volts. But under the weight of an Emmy-nominated performance, (laughs) Elliot still refuses to press the buttons. But it's okay, those screams were just a recording, so you pass the test. As they take him into custody, Rook goes to tie his shoe when he presses a switch in his sock that blows up the building behind them. With his hands cuffed in front of him, Rook runs away, jumps through a hedge, then vanishes. When Benson and Stabler can't find him, they say... He's probably dead in the river. Let's go home. (laughs) So caring. Yeah. Okay, so first thing, Elliot comes in and he's asked, hey, did you see Morning Joe on MSNBC? (laughs) And Elliot's got to be like, I don't watch those libtards. (laughs) He also said, colic is a bitch, (laughs) which was my favorite quote of this entire episode. (laughs) I'm a man, and even I don't like a colicky baby. Gratuitous promotion of Joe Scarborough. Yeah. Yeah, that's you. I'm going to start by asking you the obvious question. What's with a sheep? You mean Elliot here? Yeah. You gotta admit, Elliot's pretty damn cute. Now the great, uh, the great detail is that Rook comes on and he has a sheep and he named it Elliot. Elliot yes, <laughs> sounds about right. Except that sheep has hair. Oh, burn! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So on a hunch, they reopen the investigation into the car crash of dead Mrs. Rook's doctor. And they didn't even ask the technician to do it, but he made a beautiful 32-bit Frogger animation (laughs) of the car driving straight down the street and into a truck like it's Frogger, complete with a crash sound effect. Dr. Slipkin's car approached the intersection at 30 miles an hour. He accelerated to 60 and blew through the stop sign just as the semi entered the intersection. (laughs) Was that helpful, really? It was very visual. It was needed. (laughs) So we determined he got into a car accident. 
He got into a car accident in which he drove fast and drove into something, which, by the way, is no different than what was actually described in the police report. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing a cartoon of it did not add anything. Oh, seeing it from up above brings so much enlightenment. (laughs) So it looks like that Merritt Rook invents the mannequin challenge 10 years early. Uh, We're going to just skip by the pillow fight situation? What are you talking about? Let's talk about about these two demonstrations. (laughs) Jesus, Kevin. First, where where Michelle's sister makes her mark on network television. Sure does. What the fuck? Again, this is a, we're going to show that we're not sheep and have a pillow fight. First of all, where does everybody get these pillows? And it has to be the ones that are filled with feathers, not crumbled bits of foam like you mostly get from China. Right. And I didn't understand, like, I understand the protest and question authority and don't be a sheep, but like the pillow fight, is this a sleepover? It was really... I did not understand why they had to do that. I kind of feel like the whole point of that scene was to show us that Munch keeps a tape roller in his desk so he can keep his black <laughs> suit clean. Oh, you know he has that. <laughs> that whole scene where he was but describing... where the fuck did Munch get a pillow? Also, wouldn't he be like in a little bit of trouble for joining in the thing they went to go arrest people at? Like, even a little bit? But no, he's just explaining why he didn't rolling himself in the, in the squad room. <laughs> He just wants people to be woke. He's yeah. he's just all about it. Like he said, he's a child of the '60s, and you know he should question it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he's looking like he's 62 in this. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's, he's not he's not wearing well around the edges. He looks older than Cragen. Okay, now you can talk about the mannequin challenge. Everyone looks older than Cragen, Kevin. Cragen <laughs> has aged backwards this whole series. We've established that many times. Now we can talk about the mannequin challenge. Okay, yeah, so the second thing is let's go to Grand Central Station. And again, I don't know, this flash mob of the the boringest flash mob ever. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm like, what does this prove? <laughs> yeah, I didn't really understand. And I mean, it, yeah, I don't know. And and the fact that he became a part of the, the improv act, so he is... He's being a sheep by listening, or that was the point of it. Maybe I missed the point of it. It's the exact opposite of the scene in Dead Poet Society. Yeah. Where it's like, everybody do your thing. How and freeze. Get, I mean, Mo Rocca is clearly like his like lieutenant, right? Like he's like his- Yeah, like, where's Mo Rocca come yeah. from anyway? <laughs> yeah, we really. I have a bullhorn <laughs> so, and a whistle, so I'll be in charge. Right. Can I tell you something that I learned in this part of the episode that was very comforting to me? Yeah. Is that sound engineers who work for NASA basically do exactly what sound engineers do in recording studios, which means, by extension, I could work at NASA. Like, no problem. Hey, that's <laughs> great. Badass. I told you I was going to use all the uh, the sound effects. Every single one. Yeah, I'll have to find a way to mention Hudson University. We are Hudson, where the bad guys go to school. <laughs> no one went there. There you go. Yeah. And and Profaci. Oh, Profaci. <laughs> uh, so Robin Williams worked with Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Steven Spielberg, Robert Altman, Mike Nichols, Francis Ford Coppola, Ivan Reitman, Woody Allen. But it was in the hands of SVU director David Platt <laughs> that he was able to dig deep and emote the phrase, push the button! <laughs> and I held my wife's hand and I watched her bleed to death. I put my face in a little gun and a white coat and he killed my So that was a pretty intense scene. Um, It was weird because, like, uh, you hear, like, the Robin Williams voice, and then you would also hear the, There's nothing intense about that scene. Nothing. It's ruined by the fact that he turns off the lights in the recording studio. Like, as a viewer... I never for a second believed that Libby was actually getting shocked by that stupid button. Not even for a little second. A, her scream sounded like he just said, hey, scream, I'm going to record you. They didn't sound live. But yeah. second, like, why turn off the lights? Like, why do that? I so mean, he can't see that she's not screaming. That's the experiment, Rebecca. <laughs> God damn it. And the experiment was they were in a different room with a wall between them. You're talking about the real... The Milgram real experiment. Milgram experiment. Michelle, how much do you... I mean, they explained it in the episode, but how much do you know about the Milgram experiment? Honestly, not much. I did some research today because I know there's bits from that are based off of, you know, every Law & Order episode is based off real events. So I just did a quick search, but I really don't know much. 
yeah, this happened, I believe, in the 50s, and I've seen, you know, the archival film of it, and basically it would be a guy sitting at a table with uh, some buttons or a switch, and he was told by, you know, a guy in a lab coat that for this experiment that there was somebody on the other side of the, the wall wired up, and I think they had to ask a question, and when they got it wrong, they would... Yeah, and the they whole, would zap them, and they, they weren't really being zapped, but it was it was to see like how far would this right. guy go. The whole conceit was how far will people go to hurt other people when they're told this is the confines of the experiment, you have to do it. Right. It was the I'm only following orders experiment. Is yeah. Basically, what it right. was. Yeah. Which is how you get a girl naked in a burger joint. <laughs> Not because true. it's the same thing. It's like how right. you know you believe. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. If it's an authority figure, how far will you go? But here's the thing. The Milgram experiment, like they're taking notes and like getting data from that. Does Robin Williams even know that that manager actually got that girl naked in the burger joint? How did he wouldn't even know because he's not on the phone anymore? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're saying there's a, a a plot hole. I'm saying there's a plot hole. Oh, okay. More than one, but that <laughs> okay. is one of them. It's funny because uh, Elliot won't push the button, but you know if it's the other way around, it'll be like, I'll fucking push the button. <laughs> so would I. That's right. Come in and bitch about your colicky baby and I'm like, my barren womb. Fuck you. <laughs> so first he lures Elliot into a secret lair with Olivia wired up in the isolation booth booth like he's a fucking Bond villain. Yep. You know, in the chair, he's got to swing around. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't took- expect you to get here so quickly, Detective Stabler. Yeah, just waiting to pet the cat, right? Now, forget the detail that he suddenly blows up the building to make his Forget the detail? Forget that? Yeah. Forget forget that Bond villain thing. He runs into the river, and the detectives just give up. (laughs) He's still signing him. Pretty smart. He blew that building. He had a plan. He went into that water cuffed. He's dead. (laughs) I have so many. I Okay. If this was the only episode I saw, the thing I would wonder be like, Does it is the come? only episode you right. saw. Right, <laughs> correct. Let me retract. I would wonder because I'm not going forward. I'll probably never watch more. Maybe we'll see. But I would how, be like, how have you avoided it? I mean, that's what I want to know. I how know. have you avoided it? Very it's carefully. All the time. Very There's carefully. just so much more content out there, I suppose. But he just rose into the river. We never see the dead body, so I'd be like, oh, he comes back. Right, you would think that he would come back. Yeah, but I'm assuming he doesn't. No, they just never yeah. explain. But there's a whole other part of that whole scene. Elliot and Liv, Liv like, do an awesome running scene here. So Robin Williams takes off and he's running, and you're like, oh, those cops are definitely going to catch him because they look like they're athletes and they're running. They're running. And he's kind of like doing this weird <laughs> thing with his, hips, street, with his hands in front of him. Chasing him yeah. through the park. They go to the playground. Then he goes into what is clearly a path between two bushes. They arrive at that same path between two bushes, and they're like, wait. How do we get between these bushes? It's like go through the same oh, they stopped at the bushes. path that he went they through. Did. Like you just saw him go through that path. You, you think there are thorns in those bushes? Should we <laughs> maybe be careful one after another? But I also didn't understand how they didn't hear a splash. <laughs> yeah, right. They jump through the bushes and then it tees at the river and they're like, we don't know where he went. I'm like, I don't know. There's two of you. One go left, one go right. Right. You know, it's not or like look Whoa. down to or see if there's down. a boat. They didn't even look down. Mm, I don't know. And He's... the whole assertion is, you know. If he went in there, he's dead. Then they just walk away. Like, even if that's true, don't you stand there and call people and get them to come yeah. check? Yeah. But he's obviously a Bond villain. So did he like escape in his hovercraft? Or... <laughs> right. And my my question for you guys is: Was Merritt planning on killing himself with you know with the bomb this whole time? If he didn't get caught, or did he really want to suffer and drown if he went into the body of water, the East River? This is the plot hole because at the time he's at Grand Central Station, he's been acquitted of all charges. 
he's got every reason to believe that he's never going to be arrested. Right. But in that same moment, he also has on standby, he has an abandoned <laughs> record recording studio that is already wired with a, a, you know, a remote device that he keeps in his sock. Yes. Just in case he has to make a getaway. Yes. And let's this be real. The other charges they were going to bring that he made a phone call that made somebody commit suicide. Like he's not going to get convicted of that either. No. Like, that's, that's not even yeah. a thing. That was a thing in like Massachusetts with those two teenagers. But she literally told that other guy like a hundred times to commit suicide. He was just making a phone call. Well, he already knows how to work a jury. He does. Casey's right. no match for him. No, she isn't with those eyebrows and that baggy suit. Yeah. <laughs> and the rash. Yeah, remember we spent... <laughs> <laughs> she ate strawberries before they taped. It's not her fault. Oh, that's it. Okay. <laughs> remember, they they will spend all day making someone create a cartoon recreation of a car accident from five <laughs> years ago based on a hunch. But you can't call for backup when you find a felon who was just here a minute ago. <laughs> I nope. mean, did they go back to the office and they were just he's in the he's in the river. That's it. Yeah. I and I need it. a new set of handcuffs. Sheep can't swim, so we shouldn't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it'd be great is like back on meantime, back on Morning Joe. <laughs> That producer is like, hey, you remember the guy who came on with, with the, the sheep, sheep a week ago? Who's taking care of the sheep, by the way? Where is yeah. he keeping the sheep? Where's and Elliot? Care of it? Yeah. We see he lives in an apartment. Where is he keeping this damn sheep? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Not at the record studio. It just blew up. <laughs> but the producer would be like, hey, Joe, remember that guy? Well, he just escaped from the police handcuffed and disappeared into the river. And he'd be like, yeah, I don't, I don't think we'll cover that. Um <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. Can't wait. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the Headlines. This episode was inspired by a strip search scam at a Kentucky McDonald's in 2004. Shut up. A man who said it was a police officer <laughs> oh, yeah. called the restaurant and told assistant manager Donna Summers one of her employees was wanted for theft. After describing a woman who looked like cashier Louise Ogborn, the manager brought her into the back office. The caller ordered Summers to strip search the employee. After an hour of keeping the naked woman in the office, Summers told the caller she needed to work the counter. The caller told her to have someone she trusted watch Ogborn, so she called her fiancé, Walter Nix. Over the next two hours, upon the direction of the caller, Nix forced Ogborn to dance naked, do jumping jacks, and perform oral sex on him. What? Summers eventually became suspicious and confronted the caller who hung up. Police linked the hoax to 70 others across the US, but none were this serious. They traced the phone card used to David Stewart of Massachusetts. In 2006, a Kentucky jury found him not guilty of charges connected to the crime. But police say that after Stewart's arrest, the hoax phone call stopped. So a guy from the Eurythmics convinced Donna Summer to make somebody get naked. (laughs) I guess if you you just read the report, you might think that. Okay, just checking. Yeah. So um, the caller was able to stretch it out by telling... Donna Summer. <laughs> Sorry, it's never not going to be funny. <laughs> that the rest of the police in town were busy, <laughs> but on their way. Uh, so, can you do this investigative work for us and help us along? It's <laughs> crazy. So, knowing what we've talked about about the you know willingness to please authority, can you? Why are you laughing? You cannot believe this, huh? <laughs> I just, I just can't imagine. Like having worked a number of like retail type jobs growing up and like even as an adult, you know, throughout the years, like having those kinds of jobs. Like if you run a McDonald's, you've got other shit to do besides conduct like a private dick investigation on the behest of a telephone stranger. Doesn't you have to like put the fries in the basket? Well, here's the thing. Yes. Yeah. There was a lot of pressure because the naked girl was not at the counter, right? <laughs> and the orders were backing up and the manager was there and she's like telling the police officer, and I you know, say that with air quotes, I've got to go. So that's why he's like, okay, well, you need to get somebody else to watch her. And that's when she called her fiance. Mm. Anyway, while police in Kentucky 
had traced that phone call to Florida. That's They learned that there was a detective in Massachusetts already working on this case. And like the TV show, they were able to identify Stewart by video at several Walmarts buying the cards. They didn't see his face, but they got the uniform that he was wearing and eventually tracked tracked it down to him. Why would you think that a giant department store wouldn't have video cameras or that you would just be able to slip out you know, wearing your work uniform that uh, no one would know it was you? Well, why would you think that someone would even find you? Because here's the thing. If I wanted to commit this crime, 100% exactly what I would do would be go to Walmart to buy prepaid phone cards. I would never think that they'd be able to trace that back to me then calling a McDonald's in Kentucky and talking to Donna Summer. <laughs> that is an obscure scheme. Am I wrong, Michelle? No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I wanted to buy an axe to kill somebody, I wouldn't go into Walmart and buy it wearing my work uniform with my name on it. Well, you have to buy it somewhere. Rebecca. But to buy phone cards that were going to be using this thing that I couldn't imagine would be turned into some kind of national investigation. I mean, I got to say, what was his name? Dave Stewart, <laughs> the guy from the Arrhythmics? Yeah, because don't, don't say it's Dave Stewart from the arena. I know it's not. I don't want to get sued. <laughs> it's, well, Donna Summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, what do you think Donna Summer, I think it's actually Donna, <laughs> I think it's Donna Summers. It's still funny. All right. What do you think that Summers did when she saw the videotape of her fiance making a girl go down on him? Ugh. Yeah, she broke off the engagement, obviously. <laughs> it's kind of what I was thinking. It was kind of obvious. Is it weird that I'm like picturing it? <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh. Me too. Like, Ooh. What would, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly picturing uh, <laughs> her reaction. Yeah. So Detective Walt- Milgram made me do it. Yeah, yeah. Walter yeah. Nix received a five-year prison sentence. Is that an appropriate amount given the mitigating factors in this case? What are the mitigating factors in this case? Well, that he was directed <laughs> to do, he, you know, he didn't set out to sexually assault the girl. Oh, he was directed so to Walter do it. Walter Nix was the fiance. Walter Nix was the fiance. He got five years, he got five years for, for being told what to do and then doing it. Did he have, okay, was he stupid? I mean, did anyone like test his IQ before giving him this sentence? Because here's yeah, the thing: yeah, I think, yeah I, any reasonable yeah. person who isn't stupid would show up and be like, "Yeah, I'm not doing that," or like, or would have something else to do during a weekday where they wouldn't be able to do that. You know well, what I'm he, saying? Yeah, he did it, and then he, he reportedly, like, immediately afterwards, went to a friend and said, "I think I just did something really horrible." Five years seems a lot. I mean, I feel yeah. horrible for the girl. I mean, that's not great. But they should be. To, they should sort of like maybe like team up together yeah. and like blame the real perpetrator. Although, I don't know. I mean, he must be really stupid, right? That's all you yeah. come back to. Well, yeah. are these people stupid or are they manipulated? Manipulate? Isn't this the experiment? Right. I mean, it's probably a little both. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> or some people are just not thinking, and yeah. they're just. I, I don't know. Something comes over. I don't know. I'm always just so much so self-aware and so just thinking of everything. So I feel like I'm a bad, I don't know. I just feel like I wouldn't be manipulated. But then again, I'm not in that position. But right. I don't think so. I, I, I want to safely say, <laughs> and I laugh That if someone called it, you and I'd said- hang up. They'd probably hang up. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be like, I want to see how this plays out. Here's the thing, Kevin. Oh, like, our, our, sense, our sense of sort of like personal social justice is so much more- uh, I think elevated now than it was 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, let's be yeah. real. Like sometimes you and I get like a podcast ad and we're like, yeah, we're not comfortable reading that copy. Like we don't want to make claims about a vitamin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's where mm-hmm. we are today. Right. This guy is like, you know, he doesn't, I mean, look at the Milgram experiment. Someone in a lab coat in the 1950s or 60s was like, ooh, he's wearing a lab coat and carrying clipboard. He must be a person of authority. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, I think we have more self-awareness now. I don't know where this dude fell on that. Nick's fell on that. But uh, it sounds like he maybe wasn't 100% equipped to say, you know, perhaps to push back on authority. Maybe he had, you know, experiences of his own that should have played into this. Well, I mean, there there was yeah. a, a feature film called Compliance um, that dealt with this particular case. And, you know, there are arguments that can be made that, you know, he was duped into doing this this thing but he did also you know the girl was also victimized you know she didn't want to be held she didn't want to be you know have to perform oral sex so there probably should be some kind of reckoning for that 100 percent, yes so ogborn sued mcdonald's and 
Um, originally won $6 million. That was Wait, later. this is the victim? This is the victim. Okay. McDonald's attorneys were sanctioned for withholding evidence in that case. <gasps> really? Even Donna Summers sued McDonald's and was awarded $1 million. Good for her. Their argument was that McDonald's should have offered training that people might call pretending to be police and order them to sexually assault people. No, that was not their argument. That was what? the argument, that the McDonald's didn't train them. Oh, because McDonald's may have known because it happened to other McDonald's. Could have been. <gasps> that makes sense. McDonald's is, is responsible for a lot of bad shit. Yeah. How much liability do they have in this? If McDonald's knew that this had happened at other McDonald's, they 100% should have made other employees and other franchises aware and provided some, if not training, at least like, I don't know, an email saying, like, <laughs> heads up. FYI. Hey, uh, not for nothing, but on the off chance someone calls and says, find the hottest girl there and get her to take off all her clothes. Probably not a cop. You know, when you say that we're holding evidence, and I don't want to like, make an assumption, but I bet that's what it it's was. That's probably what it was. <laughs> Michelle, Rebecca makes a good argument. I mean, a Merritt Rook level argument there. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> do you go along with her? I do, yeah. Here's the whole thing when you go to McDonald's, what does it say in your coffee right, cup right now? Don't spill. Yes, contents might be hot. We all know right. why that happened. Don't you think that they, they just could have sent an email to their franchises? <laughs> I think now if you go back to the manager's office at every McDonald's, it's probably a little posting saying, don't fall for a prank call. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Please wash your hands before going back to work and, and don't fall for a prank call. Yeah. And don't call your boyfriend to get oral from one of your employees. It's a very long notice. It's like one of those OSHA posters. <laughs> yeah. It's, just, it's on legal paper, not on eight and a half by it's 11. It's been eight and a half days since someone <laughs> it's, 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 erroneously it's, gave a blowjob in this room. <laughs> well, that is going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Michelle Rubenstein. Michelle, where can our listeners follow you online? Uh, you can follow us at It Takes Three Network, uh, ItTakesThreeNetwork.com. And if you're interested in the OC, Let's Talk OC on all social media and Tree Hill Talk on all social media. And Rebecca Lavoy, how can our listeners follow you? You can follow me at Reb Lavoy on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act, fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming show, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Other Stories was recorded in the Yoga Loft above the Bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.